Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting live 
then take a look at the event that's going to best fit you as far as the date and where it's at and everything. And then click on it and make the decision to go. I think I tell you guys every week that that a lot of folks' lives are have a, a trail behind them. They're dragging a big, long uh, row of feed sacks filled with I should have, I wish I would have, I could have, but I didn't. Don't make this one of those. Make this the event that you set your sights on, you uh, you flip the switch, and you attend it. Because it's going to change a lot of things in your life. Number one, the, the, the easiest thing is going to be that when you go to an LC rifle marksmanship event, you're going to set yourself a goal of improving your rifle marksmanship. And guaranteed, you're going to meet and then exceed this goal. You're going to be a better rifleman when you get uh, through with these two days. And at the end of the two days, once you've met that goal and you've exceeded it and you've proved to yourself, if you needed any proof, that you can set a goal, you can meet the goal, you can exceed it, then the follow-on question is, what's next? What goal? What, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's get some other, let me get, slam some other goals down. Let's, uh, let's accomplish them. And you can do that by setting yourself a goal of becoming an Appleseed member, a member of the program, and helping to push the program. You don't have to be uh, an instructor to do this. Now, you can become an instructor in several ways. You can go to an Appleseed event, shoot to rifle and standards, tell the instructor you're going to come back again, you're going to come back again, you do it again, you prove you can do it again, and you go up to the uh, shoot boss and say, uh, I'd like to uh, I'd like to ask for a, a hat. I want to become an instructor in training. And eventually become a red hat and then a shoot boss and run my own shoots. And you'll get a hat, and you'll become a member of the instructor program. You can go to uh, an Apple seat, shoot the rifle standards, and then go to an instructor boot camp. And uh, that will help accelerate your path to becoming a full instructor. You can go to a rifleman's boot camp, which is the eight-day program, and uh, that can really accelerate your instructor uh, process. <clears throat> but you don't have to be an instructor to push the program. You uh maybe instructing's not for you. Maybe you want to be uh you want to help out with promotions or you want to help out with uh the IT side or, or doing some software or writing letters or uh or just putting up flyers, anything. You can be part of the solution that Appleseed is trying to effect. Now, Appleseed isn't the answer to everything, all right? It's not the answer to every single question and problem. But it is a way to take a bite out of the problem and chew it up and and swallow it and and then take another bite. So the way you need to get started is go to the homepage, go to the Appleseed tab, go to the events page, get uh, an event Click on the uh, the pre-registration button and get yourself signed up for an event. Now, we ask you to, to pre-register because that helps out both sides of the equation. It's going to help you make sure that you have a place on the line. And 
And because we're running so many events all across the nation, we're in high speed, I'm not going to tell you that you won't that you won't get a place on the line by walking on, okay? You may very well do it, but then you, you might not. It might be sold out. The main thing is it helps us, too. The number one, it guarantees you a place on the line, but it helps us, too, because we need to know how many people are going to an event in order for us to send the correct amount of instructors and supplies, uh, et cetera. So you'll be doing both of us a favor by pre-registering. You'll be locking in your decision to uh, attend the event, and you'll be letting us know that you're coming so we can be ready for you. <clears throat> All right, that's uh, that is going to take care of the of the way to find an event and get started on this. And uh, <clears throat> and that's what we'd like you to do. Um, now, most of the folks listening to the show right now, you guys are you've already done that. You've already been down that road. Most of you guys are instructors. Uh, but for the people that aren't, the folks that are listening to this to the radio show maybe for the first time, <clears throat> that's how you get started. And certainly if you have any questions about this, if you have further questions, then go to the rwva.org homepage. And I don't remember which tab it is. I believe it's over on the right side. There's a tab that uh, says contact us. And you can send in uh, you can send in some general questions if you want to the RWVA tab that's on there. If you have some more specific questions that could be answered by the person in your state, then there's a list of states there, and that'll send the information to the the different folks in the state. Like if you have questions about Texas, then if you sent the information to uh, uh, info at Info at Texas Appleseed. Uh, I'm not sure what the what the exact address is, but it's on there. If you send that in, then I'll get a copy of that, and uh, and then I'll be glad to answer any questions you have about Texas or about uh, about anything anywhere anytime. Let me also tell you guys while I'm while I'm on the subject of answering questions that. That Appleseed is no different than any other organizations or any other subject or any any company, any group or actually reminds me a lot of the military. You know, in the military, uh there was a, there's a lot of different parallels. You've got the hurry up and wait thing, uh, which happens to a lot of folks in the military and sometimes happens to folks in Appleseed. But you also have in the military, if you wanna if you wanna find some place that is about as chock full of rumors and stuff as you can imagine, then the military is a great place for that. I can't tell you how many times I heard that we're getting ready. Okay, maybe I'll fix it now. Anyway, you have a situation where there there are rumors that are always going around we have the same thing at, at Appleseed, and uh, if there, if you ever hear of anything that you don't know the answer to, or if it sounds sinky or anything like that, uh, please don't hesitate to send me an email or a PM or something like that. I'll do my best to find out uh, any answers, or if I already know the answer, I'll be glad to share it with you. So, or if you have any grief, if anybody has any grief, and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm uh, I got a 
half mile of red tape in front of me, and I don't know how to figure it out. I know I need to get a machete and hack through this so I can get the trail out of here. Shoot me an email, give me a call on the telephone, uh, whatever whatever you need to do, and I'll give you my best effort at uh, helping you chainsaw your way through any red tape or any grief or anything like that, all right? Uh, every single person in Appleseed is a member of my family. And uh, that doesn't mean I like everybody, because I don't like everybody in my whole my, my blood family either. Some of them I'd like to punch in the face, but because they're family members, I don't. <laughs> so I'll do my best to help uh, anybody uh, with any type of a problem, etc. So be sure and contact me if you have one. All right, this is the beginning of the show, and what we do at the beginning of the show is we tell the folks, we we make some time to tell the folks thanks. And uh, I want to start off again tonight with telling my call screener, thank you, because uh, he's been with me now for, I don't know, it's been, it's been almost a couple of years now, I believe, and he's, he, he chopped that same two hours, the minimum of same two hours, out of his evening every week, and uh, he's on the other the other line uh, doing the uh, the co-host stuff here for me. He screens the callers, uh, gets the information from them. He posts into the chat room, which I, I'm I'm gonna pull my hair out one of these days over the chat room because I download every bit of software they tell me to get. I do everything they tell me. And it's it's my show, my radio show, and I would say ninety percent of the time I can't see the chat. So, uh, and I send them, uh, I send the folks at Blog Talk uh, plenty of service tickets on this, and and it still doesn't always work. So anyway, he he fills in the information into the chat room, and I'll, I'll ask him to do that again tonight by putting in the phone number three four seven. Three zero eight eight seven nine zero, so that you can call in and thank the folks around you. And he puts in the uh, the addresses for all of the folks that uh, that have asked us to give them a hand here by mentioning them on the radio show, uh, including Poker Face. That's the bump music you hear coming into this uh, program is from Poker Face. Go to PokerFace.com if you want to listen to some of their music, uh, Revolution Rock, or uh, buy some of their music. Uh, tell them that uh, Appleseed Radio sent you, and um, they may even uh, cut you a deal or something. Uh, there's a whole ton of folks, uh, Blue Feather and Taos Glock, with their mad, mad handmade uh, soap uh, company that they run. There's uh, Desert Eagle, Jimmy out in New Mexico, with his long-term uh, food storage company. Uh, it's not a food storage company. It's long-term, long-term storable food. Uh, you can pick up uh, food for your prep from Jimmy out there. Uh, there's also, uh, well, there's a whole slew of folks. There is uh, Aaron Finkel, uh, uh, Banana Man, who has the uh, In the Rabbit Hole uh, uh, blog and radio show that he does, or podcast that he does once a week. For the folks that uh, he does the urban survival, and that is the folks who are looking at uh, prepping and uh, surviving events that occur beginning with them in an urban situation. All right, 
And there's plenty of other folks in the call screen or fuel. Put those into the chat room. We appreciate that. And, uh, well, the, and uh, I also want to thank uh, Star Fox and Double L, Andrew Lomacren. They're the uh, instructors with the DFW, the Dallas-Fort Worth program that we run here. Those guys uh, are machines, and they're doing a great job in securing ranges in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and securing sponsors and making alliances and stuff like that. They're doing an absolutely fantastic job. On top of that, while they're doing all the rest of the stuff, they actually have the best instructor growing program uh, in all of Texas. Uh, they are adding new instructors to the list, uh, multiple instructors from every shoot. So I want to tip my hat to them and tell them thank you. And the rest of you guys, there is uh, there's somebody local to you for every single person that's listening. There's somebody local to you that you need to tell thanks. We're going to hold the lines open for a few minutes for you guys to do that. We're going to talk about uh, the Battle of Saratoga. And then there was some information that I wanted to get to you about uh, about some of the stuff, uh, some some incidents that happened before the uh, Fort Stanwicks and the Battle of Oriskany uh, part of the Burgoyne campaign of 1777. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> First thing I want to do is I want to bring, uh, while you guys are uh, getting your phones ready to dial, like I said, uh, and I'm sure the co-hosts will put this into the chat room. You know, we 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 secured 50 lines for you guys so that uh, we knew that when we asked you guys to call in and tell everybody thank you, your local crews, thank you, that there would be a flood of folks calling in because everybody wants to make sure that all the rest of the guys in their crew know that they're appreciated. <clears throat> and uh, we knew you would be... Uh, there would be a tsunami of calls into the uh, radio show for you to say thanks. So we still have those lines open, and while you're summoning up the uh, uh, the number or getting ready to call in, we're going to bring uh, Jim from Colorado on to talk to give us the update about uh, the uh, DFW Self-Reliance Expo. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, sir. Yeah, the expo is a week from tomorrow and then also a week from Saturday. Two-day event, the 10th and 11th in the Mesquite Convention Center in the Dallas area. And just calling once more, my last chance to plug that expo. Well, we've got, uh, I think that I rounded up maybe, I don't know how many of the Dallas folks. I'll talk to uh, to Floyd there. He's your uh, local boots on the ground manager there, but... Uh, I believe I'm going to be bringing about a dozen or so folks with me from around here. There'll be Appleseed folks and then just additional folks from local crews and stuff that uh, they want to get more information. Can you tell us about uh, a little bit about the history of this? Because as far as I know, this is the first real uh, prepping expo or self-reliance expo that's been in Texas, isn't it? I don't know about that. I don't know much about Texas. Sorry. But I can tell you a little bit about the um, Self-Reliance Expo uh, in general and our okay. relationship with that. And 
take with, from that what you can. Uh, let's see. The Self-Reliance Expo started about a year, maybe a year and a half ago. There is a fellow here in uh, the Denver area, uh, Ron, who went through a, uh, a storm and none of his neighbors had any food or anything. They couldn't get out for only a couple of days. And Ron and his family, they were all prepared and people given stuff through their friends and neighbors. And he thought, you know, there is a market out there for people to be prepared for unusual events. And so he got uh, the idea of doing this expo where folks could get together and learn in one uh, location about how to be prepared for just life. And right. had an uh, expo uh, the first year. I believe it was only Denver and Salt Lake City. Then last year he had Denver and Salt Lake City again uh, with uh, about 6,000 folks in Denver, about ten, a little over 10,000 folks in Salt Lake City. This year they're expanding it to at least four cities, which will be Dallas this coming uh, a, a week from tomorrow, and then Colorado Springs, Salt Lake City, and then they're looking to expand. Uh, possibly, we've heard um, either Seattle or um, Spokane. And then they're also we're looking at uh, possibly Pennsylvania. And so they're uh, they've partnered with a a fellow named Scott who whose business his livelihood is putting on trade shows. And he has a company based out of um, where is it Singapore. And he puts on trade shows for the electronics industry that draw two, 200,000 people in a weekend. <clears throat> and he hopes to push the Preparedness Expo, the Self-Reliance Expo, in that direction to get um, a large, large audience. <clears throat> He's trying to – his idea is, is he really just do preparedness, people who, who think the end of the world is coming and they're getting ready to hunker down that that's a fairly small market. So he's wanting to make it mainstream um, because everybody, I think, and most people, a lot of people in the, who are, think about it, um, you need to have something. Even the government tells you, um, you know, you should have a week's worth of food or then that might not be enough, but you should at least have something. Um, yeah, flashlight. yeah the government especially is going to tell you because what they're trying to tell you is, hey, don't count on us because I think we we have a good track record of showing you that uh, you're going to be awfully hungry by the time we ever get there. That's right. And so they're trying to bring this more uh, out of the preparedness community to more of everyday people. Uh, not that preparedness people are necessarily not everyday, but uh, but more to the mainstream. Well, I, I don't know if you uh, if you listened to this show over the last three years. I've had uh, Jack Spierko on from the Survival Podcast, and I've had several other folks on to speak about this. And, and sometimes folks will ask me, well, what does it have to do with Appleseed? And I, I tell them, I go, look, Appleseed isn't just about uh, rifle marksmanship and heritage and everything else. It's about it's about being providing leadership. And in order for you to provide leadership, you have to be in a position where you're not on top of your house with a sign around your neck saying, save me. And I think it's every American's Duty, and you know that's one of the things that brought me into Appleseed was was seeing what happened with uh, Katrina and Rita and stuff like that. And I realized uh, throughout my life, I, I've I've been, uh, I guess, what you would call now a prepper. But the thing is, is that 
it made me realize how many Americans have gone gotten so far away from the concept that was uh, was a reality for our grandparents. You know, our grandparents uh, and great grandparents would there would be nothing bizarre or tinfoil haddish or, or anything that gets you labeled as a domestic terrorist because they believed that you needed to have a cellar full of canned goods and extra fuel and and tools and some clothes and stuff like that so that they could take care of themselves. And we've grown so far away from that from that concept that it it's almost like two species. And now the Americans are they they have no more than a day or two to, of food or water in their home, no way to take care of themselves. And I think a lot of people are finally waking up to this and saying, "Hey, uh, we may have possibly made a horrible mistake, and we 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 must do something immediately to correct this." And I'm really happy that so many people are waking up to the concept that, that it might behoove them to put themselves in a position to take care of themselves. And not only themselves, um, you can be altruistic about it also. And in like Ron found is he had enough provisions to help his neighbors and was able exactly. to make, uh, make contacts and, and be able to do things he wouldn't be able to do otherwise. He became the go-to person about probably everything in his neighborhood just because he was able to help his neighbors out. Right, and that's the the concept that, that I'm trying to push to the Appleseed folks is that, you know, the the old-time idea or the thing, the idea that people get when you when they would hear the word survivalist, uh, some person is a survivalist, then you immediately envision the, uh, the 1950s and 60s folks who uh, are going to climb into their bunker, shut the door, and, and screw the, the airlock shut, and that's it. And that's not the... That's not the the idea of the modern prepping community. The modern prepping community is to, first of all, make sure that you're okay, but then make sure that you've established, uh, you've established ways to ensure that your neighbor is okay and that he understands he's going to take care of himself and to keep passing it on so that it's not just one person, because I'll tell you right now, anybody who thinks they're going to make it through any event or anything else uh, in the lone wolf fashion, you're, you're sadly mistaken. You're going to have to have friends and neighbors. You're going to have to be able to help each other. You're going to have to be able to take care of yourself. And then you you need to have another 25%. I don't mean just food or anything. I mean the uh, overall ability. Another 25% that you can use to help the rest of your community. And that's what the what I believe the modern concept of prepping should be. And that's how I try to push it to the Appleseed folks. Because in Appleseed, you're trying to we're trying to get folks to understand that they have a role in providing leadership to Americans and getting them to understand rifle marksmanship first of all, and then the history and heritage uh, of the nation. And I, I think that you have we have a duty to ourselves and our community to go this step further, and that is to be to be prepared enough as an individual that you can take care of yourself and then you can go about the business of helping your your community uh, recover from any event. What do you think about that? Yep, I, I agree with that, and I hope I'm not going to get political here. I'm going to try not to because I don't mean to be, is if you can take care of yourself, 
and your neighbors can take care of yourself, you're less reliant on others and especially less reliant, as you said, on the government. And if uh, more people are less reliant on the government, I think we can head back into the direction that our founding fathers had envisioned our government to be. And so that is it, absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And that's uh, sometimes I don't go that far because it's hard for me to get folks to understand the the even the beginning concept of prepping. Though more and more people are, but that is absolutely the next step. And that is. If you're not dependent on an entity for your survival, then that entity no longer holds the uh, the power over you that it did. Yep. You had said, and I think that that whole that whole that whole mindset is the thing we need to get back up. Now, I'm not talking uh, just like you said earlier, the, the or political or anything like that, or anti-government. I'm definitely, absolutely not anti-government. I'm 100% pro-government. That being said, I consider the government to be we, the people of these United States. So I'm 100% in favor of the people taking care of themselves, taking care of their brothers and sisters. And you know, you mentioned the, the altruistic nature of prepping and stuff like that, and and I completely agree. You know, right now in America, we've gotten to the point where uh, if somebody's in trouble, we don't uh, – back in the old days, there was no government handouts. What happened is if you got into trouble, your your neighbors helped you. The church helped you. The Salvation Army helped you. Somebody helped you because that's what they were there for. Now, with the, the advent of government saying, look, we'll take on this role. We'll take care of everybody. So people are less – inclined to help their friends and neighbors because they are assuming that somebody else, as far as that being the government, is going to help them. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be helping each other. We're supposed to be making sure that, that we're in good shape and that our neighbors and the left and us are in good shape. The same way that whenever you're on the line at Naples, you dress the line, you make sure that you're following the safety rules and that those on the left and right of you are following the safety rules, the same thing in life. You take care of yourself and then make sure that the folks on the left and right of you, that if there's something you can do to help them, then that, that's that's part of being an American and part of being a human being. At least that's my two cents on it. Yep. And uh, as you were uh, talking earlier, the, you know, we, we are, it's good to be prepared for ourselves, but part of, I think, what Appleseed is all about is trying to make America a better place. And so it's not just trying to make ourselves better, which it is. It, it made, Appleseed has made me a lot better person. But it's also to help America. And just like the the folks down back in uh, April 19th, 1775, they were thinking as much of the future of generations and what uh, the country would hold for them as, as for themselves. And also people like, uh, oh, what's his name, Isaac Davis, he was from Acton. He wasn't in any immediate danger, but he came to help his fellow citizens and uh, because he saw what needed to be done, and he stepped up and did it. Uh, so I think there's a, a Absolutely. lot going, going back to, to the things we talk about at Appleseed that tie in. Folks who uh, you know, were able to take care of themselves, and because they could do that, they were able to help other folks also. Uh, a different way back then, but it's, I think the concept is the same. Well, 
you know, the guys back then did not, they didn't think like we did, like we do now, like a lot of folks do now. And I got to tell you, I, I was absolutely 100% guilty of of that myself until, well, you know, until the last 20 years. And that is the folks, our founding fathers, a great deal of them, whenever we entered the American Revolutionary War, those guys were already in their 60s, 70s, a lot of them. They weren't... Uh, they weren't risking their lives and their families and their fortunes so that they could have it better for themselves. They were at the end of the road. They could they could kick back. They could kick their heels up and be fine where they were. They weren't doing it for themselves. They were doing it for those who come after. And they keep they wrote about that over and over. You don't when you read the documents that the founders wrote, you don't see a whole bunch of I. Uh, they very seldom say, I want this, or I'm doing this for this reason. I'm, uh, I need this, or I want this. They don't talk about that that way. They talk about uh, for their posterity, for those who came after. We're trying to do something good for the folks that are coming so that we leave a better nation for them, not, not so that we're doing a good job and we can benefit from it. That's the same, the whole idea behind the Appleseed Project. When uh, Johnny Appleseed went across the nation spreading out the apple seeds, he wasn't doing it. He didn't. He didn't plant an apple seed in some dirt and then sit there and go, "Man, this is going to be a great apple seed tree," and and sit there and pour the water on it and make sure that there was no weeds growing there, and just sit there lovingly taking care of it because he knew that uh, if he sat there long enough, it would grow some apples and they would fall into his lap and then he would eat them and enjoy the delicious fruits from them. He didn't do that. He went across the nation. He put the seeds out. Some of them landed uh, on rocks and they died. Some of them landed in, you know, in poor soil and they were covered by uh, weeds or the birds ate them. And some of them, fell into fertile soil, and they grew. But guess what? He was never going to taste that apple, all right? He's never even going to know if it ever grew. It was going to grow or not, not depending on anything he did other than put the seed in the ground. And that's what we're doing. And, uh, and we may not ever see the results of our actions. We may not see some wonderful results or get some instant feedback on it. That doesn't matter, all right? What matters is making sure that the information gets put out, making sure that the seeds get planted, all right? And that's all you can do. You can't, don't try and control any of the rest of it because you're not going to be able to. But you can put the seeds out, sling them out. They're going to fall where they may, and some are going to grow and some aren't, all right? That's the, the whole idea behind the apple seed project. And, we're doing. We're trying to do the same thing that the founders did. And that's make sure that when we hand this nation off to those who come after that it's a better nation. That we don't drive the car till its last mile, four flat tires uh, and a busted engine, and hand the keys off to our uh, posterity and say, "Here you go, have a great time." Uh, that's not how it's supposed to be. All right. We're supposed to do what we know is right, and that's make sure that if we hand this nation off to the next generation, to posterity, that we're giving them the absolute best 
nation that we can. And I, and I, and I know in my heart that prepping is connected to this, Jim. And uh, and I'm I'm absolutely 100% behind this. And like we talked about last week, I'm really excited about this because you know we were talking about the the difference between the general population and the prepping community, and especially the gun culture and the prepping community, how they have two really different outlooks on on people that are trying to provide information for them, like the Appleseed Project. Mm-hmm. You know, when we, if I'm hoping that when we go in there and we talk to them and we put the information in front of them, they're going to do what what I and the, the folks that I work with already do, which is, uh, okay, all right, let me see what you got. Give it to me. Give it to me because I'm going to put it right here in front of me. I'm going to put it on the list, and I'm going to and uh, I'm going to put a schedule on it. I'm going to get it done and check it off. And uh, I'm hoping that's the way that these guys are looking at it. That's right. The the prepper community, if you will, self reliance community, maybe is a better word. Um, really, they're there to find out what to do and then put those those new skills or new information in action. It's uh, they're there to learn. They're to, uh, they're ready to do something. They're just looking to find out what that is for the most part. Right. And listen, you guys don't have to wait for an expo. Now, certainly I want all the Texas folks uh, to attend. And uh, we'll make sure that you got the uh, uh, apple seed T-shirts and polos and hats and everything else on, and you got plenty of uh, stuff to hand out in accordance with however uh, Jim and the the managerial crew set up the parameters of this. I want to make sure that we have a, a good presence there. But don't don't feel like you have to wait for an expo. All right, you can get on uh, on the internet. You can get on the wonderful wide world of Google or whatever, and look for a self reliance uh, community because every state has one. Every single state has some type of community that's forming around this, and you can speak to them directly. Okay. Uh, Give us the. Uh, we know it's the DFW Self Reliance Expo in uh, Mesquite, actually, right? What is the yes, name sir. of the actual, uh, uh, like the city and the 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 building that it's in? Well, you got me, but my understanding is it's in Mesquite, and it's the Mesquite Convention Center. It's the old rodeo grounds that they've changed in or in uh, expanded into a convention. Oh, okay, I've been there to the rodeo. Mhm. All right. Well, perfect. So, so I'm hoping it's uh, on our uh, Garmin. That way, I'll be able to find it. Other than that, I don't know where it is really. But. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And anything else? Uh, any other new info you find out about it? Who else? Who else is going to be there? Who is going to be some of the uh, sure the main speakers? You guys know anything about that? Um, non-apple seed folks. No, right. I don't know. They've. Uh, in the past, had some great folks. Um, if I could remember their names, I'd, I'd drop them, but I don't remember right now. Uh, okay. But I, no, I, I don't know. Um, as far as Appleseed, though, um, you're going to be there. I will be there. That. Rumor has it, Scuzzy's going to be there. Uh, yes, in fact, uh, when, when we add everything up, we might have 15 or more folks helping us at the booth, and that's going to be wonderful. Because that means I can oh, you'll have, you'll, you'll have that as a minimum as far as yeah. uh, Texas instructors. And then wh- however many folks you bring will be on top of that. But I think, like I said, I think I'm bringing three or four people in my own vehicle. And uh-huh. uh, and then 
there's going to be a ton of folks that I've already talked to from the DFW area that are going, and then additional folks from the area around here that aren't Appleseed, but uh, mm-hmm. they're going to be coming up there with me. So I may just throw an Appleseed T-shirt on them since they've okay. been to an event. Yep. I do have a teaser for you, though. All right. Um, and uh, just an aside, between you and me, we ha- we're having a meeting on a Thursday evening that I would like you to attend at the expo. All right. And what that's going to involve, I can't tell you right now. But if it comes through, it's going to be a really big thing for Appleseed. It's a chance to help someone in the uh, military community. And All right. They're, they're putting together a meeting to make sure that there's enough interest in doing this. And they've asked Appleseed to be a part of it. Um, and I'm not going to give you any more than that. But uh, if, if it goes, they will announce it at the expo on uh, Friday morning. Perfect. All right, guys. You see, this is this is going to be kicking up. Uh, this is going to be reverberating uh, throughout the nation, especially here in Texas. Like I said, I'm really excited about this because it's a chance to to put the information out in front of a brand new uh, group of folks that are all going to be in one place. And I think it's really going to uh, to give us a boost on the lines all across the state and actually all across the nation as this thing unfolds. And uh, just like Jim said, you've got they're not just they're not just working on this. They got a, they've got their hands in a whole bunch of different pies that they're juggling around. And I'm sure as those uh, pies land on the table safely, that uh, he's going to cut you all a slice of them and uh, tell you what it's about. So we're really looking forward to that. Yep, and that's did all my, I have. Did my analogies uh, were they confusing enough for everybody? <laughs> Worked for me, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listen. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for calling right. in and letting us know. And then here's here's the uh, other part of this is, let's see. Uh, well, actually, actually, I'm gonna have to figure out how to do this because what time is the meeting on Thursday night? Oh, I don't know. Because you're like trying to do a radio show or something, aren't you? Yeah, but I can also I can also move it. Uh, because I've, I've moved it before. I can move it for a day or so. Anyway, what we'll probably do is give you a – we may just uh, move it so that we can do a show uh, like on uh, either Friday night. Uh, that's probably the best one. We'll do a show Friday night. Next, uh, Our next show will be next Friday night. Then we can give you the inf- information that we have gotten from the expo and let you all guys all uh, uh, benefit from any of the, the new stuff that we find from there. And then, uh, and then we can uh, talk about it again on the week after. So we'll probably do the next show on Friday night uh, from the DFW area from the expo. All right. Well, Jim, and, uh, and I will get you again. information. On, I'll get you information, a PM on uh, the information you need. Okay, sounds great. Okay. All right, thank you very much again, Jim. Thanks for doing this, and then thanks for calling in tonight and letting everybody know about it. Thank you, Scout. All right. Bye. You take care. All right. Uh, that's the Dallas Expo, the 10th and 11th. And uh, we certainly would like all of the folks here in Texas, any of you guys that uh, have some free time on Friday or Saturday, to show up and 
and give a hand with the booth and stuff. And I believe, I meant to, to check with Jim again just now, but I believe that they've also given given space uh, inside on the indoor part of the expo for an indoor telegun range. Uh, I believe that's my understanding. So that uh, we'll actually be running a uh, you know a live uh, range inside. Now I don't don't take this as carbon stone because I could be wrong. It might be outside or something else, but I believe that's what Jim told me, and uh, and uh, and I will let you know for sure on Friday night. We'll move the show to uh, this next Friday. <clears throat> All right. Uh, once again, uh, if you want to call in during the show, then we'll be glad to. Take your calls. You can call in at 347-308-8790. And if you want to tell somebody uh, one of your local proof thanks, that would be fine. If you want to uh, let us know of an upcoming event that you guys are having, that's fine. If you want to uh, to put out over the air to the rest of the Appleseed crew that uh, you have some commercial venture that you're la- launching and you would like us to uh, to help you with it, we'll be glad to do that too. We want to support our friends and uh, family here on the radio show. And uh, like I said, we'll keep the lines open for you to call in. I'll check in periodically, 347 Oh, yeah, okay, 347-308-8790. I was... Uh, they've changed some of the numbers here, and I thought I was reading you the wrong one. That's right, 347-308-8790. One of the things that we wanted to speak to you about tonight that I'd like to talk to you about is we were talking last week about the Burgoyne campaign, and uh, I believe I read not last week, but week before, I believe I read uh, uh, one of the one of the letters to you, and I'm reading out of the book, The Spirit of 76, and uh, this book was given to me by Doug Tibbetts, and uh, The Spirit of 76, which I told you before, this is <clears throat> folks that write books on history and teach history, etc., they've got to get it from somewhere. And the way they get it is by going through old documents, old letters, manuscripts, and uh, getting the history that they're going to use in their books from there. Now, this book is just the raw documents uh, that were uh, generated during the American Revolutionary War by the folks involved in each of these events. So this is the the direct information uh, covering the American Revolutionary War. uh, I like this because it gives you a very direct, uh, very direct outlook on what the people were seeing at the time it was happening, what they saw, what they heard, what they did. <clears throat> now it's not always uh, entirely accurate because it's being given by the it's being given from the viewpoint of the person speaking, and sometimes that person did not know everything was going on or they have a skewed uh, uh, vision of it or something like that. But it's still the the direct word from the mouth of the folks that were either experiencing it or witnessing it. Now, we talked a couple of weeks ago about 
uh, Burgoyne getting the making an alliance with the Six Nations with the Indians, and the reason that they did that was uh, was because I believe I told you about this, Tim, is it because the British England did not want the colonists expanding deeper and deeper into the, the uh, into the Americas because the farther that they got from the coastline, then the less dependent they were on British goods. So and and the less able the uh, the people of England were able to exert authority over them because once you've moved uh, out to the wilderness, you you're having to make your own stuff. And if you do that long enough, and enough of you get together to do that, then pretty soon you're building uh, uh, you're you're building factories, you're building uh, uh, different. Uh, different places to make things. And if you're doing that, then you're not buying them from England. And England supported the colonies because uh, it was always uh, understood that the colonies would buy their goods. It would be a place for England to sell their goods. They would send in raw material, and England would send send, uh, finished products to the colonies. And that was the, uh, the agreement, either spoken or unspoken or written or unwritten. And add to that the fact that uh, once the folks got far enough uh, away out of the colonies into the interior, then they were no longer actually under the governing eye or authority of the English rulers. And this is, at the time, this was not a, a comforting thought. So they didn't want the colonists to be expanding uh, further westward from the coast. And uh, and they had actually even made treaties with the Indians, who actually got a pretty good deal, a, a great deal of time from the, the English, made treaties with the Indians that the the colonists would not move further westward and expand the colonies. All right, so you have the, the British regular forces attempting to uh, get the, their, the Indians as their allies and uh, getting the Indians to fight on the side of the British regulars. And they did. And uh, even to the point that the the British generals were going in his folks were paying the Indians for scalps. So this, obviously, this did not look good. It did not look good at all, uh, either back in England, certainly not in the colonies. Uh, the Indians were already the boogeyman of the colonists, and to think that that the country when you had, that you were just part of was actually paying the boogeyman to uh, to kill, and, and, and the Indians had a different concept of warfare. They had more of the Machiavellian total warfare concept than the than the English did. That meant that when you uh, attacked a, uh, a settlement, uh, you didn't just uh, kill the men. You killed all the men, uh, and then you killed all the women and children that you didn't take prisoner. And uh, they would kill the men, uh, and the men that they didn't take, kill, they may take them prisoner, take the women prisoner, take the kids prisoner, either for ransom or to to work as servants for them, to work as slaves for their tribe. And uh, they had no qualms about this. So then that's a, that was a 
a lifestyle that they had been living for thousands of years. You know, that's that was how they interacted with each other. One tribe would attack another. Now, uh, they didn't usually try and destroy or kill the whole other tribe. You know, you would fight to a certain point, but then you would take the other tribal members that you didn't kill. You take them prisoner and take them back to your to your uh, Indian settlement, and they would become the slaves. So, so there was a whole different idea of warfare between the Indians' outlook on it and the British regulars' outlook. Nonetheless, uh, they became allies in this. <clears throat> and right off the bat, there were some problems. Uh, uh, one of them began uh, like a few days before Burgoyne's army took over the abandoned Fort Edward. There was a, an atrocity that was committed that actually did more to arouse the whole North Country against Burgoyne than, than any other incident of the campaign. There was a, a young woman named uh, Jane McCrae. She was captured by some of the uh, Indians that Burgoyne had that were under his command, and uh, she was shot and scalped and had the clothing stripped from her body. Her murderer uh, was reputed to be an Indian uh, named uh, Wyandotte Panther. He took the scalp to the British camp. And now, the woman was actually uh, the fiancé of one of the... the, the Tory militia leaders, he was an officer that's from the Tory militia, uh, who was attached to Burgoyne's contingent. So th- this was a very sticky situation for Burgoyne. I mean, on both sides. One, you've got Burgoyne who is responsible for setting loose uh, thousands of Indians to to kill and burn and murder against the colonists. And then those very same ones that he sent out actually happened to attack uh, some of his own uh, Tory militia and kill the fiancé of one of them. Now, and this has this was actually very easy to do and caused a great deal of problems because the Indians didn't, they didn't, they couldn't tell a... a uh, a Tory sympathizer from a rebel. They were all, you know, the evil white man, and they all needed to be killed and scalped, basically. Now, I'm sure that there were specific people they knew not to do it to, and certainly not to guys in uniform, but other than that, it's going to be hard for the, the Indians to really tell who's who, or who's lying, who's telling the truth, and and they weren't that worried about it. They were really more worried about uh, counting coup and taking prisoners and getting scouts and and certainly getting some payback for what they consider to be uh, the wrongs committed against them. Well, so what was Burgoyne going to do about this? He was uh, he was really worried that that his Indian contingent would desert if he executed a Panther as was he originally intended to do. So Burgoyne pardoned Wyandotte. Now, the fact that there were many other atrocities, uh, quite a few involving whole families of settlers, 
the fact that Jane McRae was a Tory sympathizer and that she was the fiance of an officer of Burgoyne's uh, Tory militia contingent did not in the least abate, uh, abate the the indignation of the patriots, right? Uh, it, it was just the fact that, that she was the 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 wife or the fiance, I mean the fiance of supposedly their enemy, that they weren't happy about that. They weren't happy about anybody being killed by the Indians. And then Burgoyne pardoned him. So this was uh this was one of those things that that quickly made the news across the country. And upon relieving Schuler of command, Gates filed a formal protest with Burgoyne. Now this is one of Gates' best efforts in the, in the whole campaign as far as his, uh, uh, I don't want to call it propaganda, but uh, as far as his his written work, and uh, he was actually very pleased with his with his work. He wrote that, I gave him, Burgoyne, a tickler upon scalping. And this is uh, from a letter he wrote to Governor Trumbull. Uh, Burgoyne's disavowals, him trying to separate himself from this, this event was was actually very ineffectual. And Washington, General Washington saw to it that the story of Jenna McRae was kept alive. He uh, wrote to the Massachusetts and Connecticut militia, he wrote a letter urging them to repel an enemy from your borders who, not content with hiring mercenaries to lay waste to your country, he's talking about the Hessians, not the Germans, have now brought savages with the avowed and expressed intention of adding murder to desolation. So Washington was trying to get every bit of mileage he could out of this, too. Yes, it was a horrible thing, and uh, and Washington wanted to make sure, because Washington's problem here was that <clears throat> the states, this wasn't, the, the, the 13 colonies weren't, it was not already a functioning country. And the states were withholding men from the Continental Army. They weren't sending folks into the Continental Army. They were saying, look, we we have X number of men here. We need to keep them here for the defense of the state, which seems like a pretty uh, rational idea, other than many states were not, they were not under such a direct threat that they could not have loosened up uh, a certain number of men and sent them, and some did. But Washington wanted to, to let them know that, that, look, this could very well happen to you. And he was trying to urge them to become more active in repelling the invaders, the British regulars and the Hessian mercenaries. Uh, okay, this is a letter from a British officer who is he's talking about the murder of Jenny McRae. And uh, this is from... Lieutenant William Digby of the Shropshire Regiment, and he's writing this on July 24, 1777. Uh, we marched from Skeensboro, and though but 15 miles to the river, which there turned so narrow as not to allow more than one batal abreast. The batal are the, the uh, they're like the scows, like the big, uh, the big boats. They're two or three times as big as a, like as a as a rowboat, enough to carry. Uh, sometimes a dozen men in supplies, or even up to two dozen, which were turned so narrow as not to allow more than one battalion abreast, from whence we were obliged to cut a road through the route, which was attended with great fatigue and labor, 
for our wagons and artillery. Our heavy cannon went over Lake Georgia. It was impossible to bring them over the road we made and were to join us near Fort Edward. In case the enemy were to stand us at that place, it being a good road for cannon and about 16 miles. Fort Anne is a place of no great strength, having only a blockhouse, which, though strong against small arms, is not proof against cannon. We saw many of their dead unburied since the action of the 18th, which caused a violent stench. One officer in the 19th Regiment, Lieutenant Westrop, was then unburied, and from the smell, we could only cover him with leaves. At that action, the knights took their colors, which were intended as a present to their colonel, Lord Ligonier. They were very handsome, a flag of the United States, 13 stripes, alternate red and white, with 13 stars, in a blue field representing a new constellation. There you go. And he says it, he, he says it right on the dot, that the flag was the 13 stars in a blue field representing a brand new constellation as far as the world map goes. The United States was a brand new constellation uh, in a map of the world's cities and nations. Uh, in the evening, our Indians brought in two scalps, one of them an officers, which they danced about in their usual manner. Indeed, the cruelties committed by them were too shocking to relate, particularly the melancholy catastrophe of the unfortunate Miss McCray, which affected the general and the whole army with the sincerest regret and concern for her untimely fate. This young lady was about 18, had a pleasing person. Her family were loyal to the king, and she engaged to be married to a provincial officer in our army before the war broke out. Our Indians, and in parentheses he says, I may well now call them savages, were detached on scouting parties, both in our front and on our flanks, and came to the house where she resided, but the scene is too tragic for my pen. She fell a sacrifice to the savage passions of these bloodthirsty monsters, for the particulars of which I'll refer the reader to General Burgoyne's letter, dated 3rd September, to General Gates. I make no doubt about the, the censorious world who seldom judge but by outward appearances, will be apt to censure General Burgoyne for the cruelties committed by his Indians and imagine he countenanced them in so acting. On the contrary, I am pretty certain it was always against his desire to give any assistance to the savages. Well, you know, certainly you could say that in his defense, saying, General Burgoyne, did you, are you ordering them to go and kill women and children and, and, and folks that already had, that don't even have anything to do with the war effort? And he said, certainly not. And he didn't. But here's the thing. Uh, he, he was not a, uh, an uneducated man. He was, he was not the, the acts and the history of the Indians and the, the colonists on the frontier and throughout the colonies were not unknown to him. They had experienced them 20 years earlier in the French and Indian War. None of these were, were unknown to them. The Indians were allies with the French in the last war. <clears throat> so he knew that he knew how they acted. So if if he set them out against the colonists, he knew very well that this was 
not only a possibility, but absolutely a certainty. So, so it was nice of this young man, of this officer, to to say he was pretty certain it was always against his desire to give any assistance to the savages. But the reality is, is that he gave the order for them to begin their attacks upon the colonists. All right, and then a letter from uh, from Gates to Burgoyne, and this is uh, written on September second, seventeen seventy seven. This is the letter that uh, that the lieutenant just mentioned, and this is the one that. Uh, uh, I believe it was circulated uh, in the uh, among the in the among the colonists and the colonies. Last night, I had the honor to receive Your Excellency's letter of the first instant. I'm astonished you should mention inhumanity or threaten or threaten retaliation. Uh, nothing happened in the action at Bennington, but what is common when works are carried by assault. That the savages of America should in their warfare mangle and scalp the unhappy prisoners who fall into their hands is neither new nor extraordinary. But that the famous Lieutenant General Burgoyne, in whom the fine gentleman is united with the soldier and the scholar, should hire the savages of America to scalp Europeans and the descendants of Europeans, uh, nay, more, that he should pay a price for each scalp so barbarously taken, is more than will be believed in Europe until authenticated facts shall, in every gazette, convince mankind of the truth of the horrid fate. Miss McCrae, a young lady lovely to the sight, a virtuous character and amiable disposition, engaged to be married to an officer in your army, was with other women and children, taken out of a house near Fort Edward, carried into the woods, and there scalped and mangled in a most shocking manner. Two parents, with their six children, were all treated with the same inhumanity while quietly residing in their once happy and peaceful dwelling. The miserable fate of Miss McCrae was particularly aggravated by her being dressed to receive her promised husband, but met her murderer employed by you. Upwards of 100 men, women, and children have perished by the hands of the ruffians to whom is is asserted you have paid the price of blood. The next sentence, crossed out but still clearly legible, reads, and this is is the sentence he wrote and then drew a line through it so that it wouldn't be considered part of his official letter, letter, and yet it is still readable, reads, the law of retaliation is a just law, and you must expect to feel its force, all right? So what he's saying is, if you're going to, if this is the way you're going to act, then you can only expect the same, because at the time, that was that was the way armies fought each other. You know, there was retaliation. No different than it is today. Uh, we have laws against it, and I'm telling you, it still happens. Guaranteed, it still happens. You come into the American lines and you cut off somebody's head or you chop them up, then uh, somewhere in the in the next uh, bit of, uh, of stuff going on, don't be surprised to find one of the enemies uh, mistreated. All right, that's the way. That's what men do to each other. That's the 
the way that wars have been fought in the past, and they're always fought. And that's what he's telling him. If you are going, if you are going to do things like this, don't think that that you will be safe from them. You know, when you start a fire like this, it can easily burn up your house as well as mine. All right, the letter continues on. Enclose our letters for your wounded officers, prisoners in my hands. By them, you will be informed of the generosity of their conquerors. Such money, clothing, and attendance, and other necessaries which your excellency pleases to send to the prisoners shall be faithfully delivered. The late Colonel Baum's servant is at Bainton and would have come to your excellency's camp, but when I offered him a flag, he was afraid to run the risk of being scalped and declined going. When I know what surgeon and attendants your excellency is desirous of sending to Bennington, I shall dispatch an officer to your lines to conduct them to my camp. All right, you see what he's saying? He's saying that <laughs> that uh, his own guys, that even Burgoyne's own men, some of the British regulars' own men, he told them that uh, that he was going to let them go so they could return to Burgoyne's camp. But they denied that they said, we don't want to go because we're afraid we're going to get scalped. So, and he's making this point quite well to him. And that's just what I said. When you unleash, you know, I've seen this before from folks like uh, like the different folks that they want to save or free the animals. And you see them saying, I don't want to save the animals. And they, they bust into the lion's enclosure at the zoo or hack open the lock on it and they go, go, be free, lion, be free. And the lion immediately comes over to them and kills them and eats them because the lion is just a lion. He has he has no no way of discerning your intentions or, or anything in your heart, all right? The lion is just a lion. And it's the same thing with this. Once you set loose, uh, once you put certain, certain events in motion, then you become just as susceptible uh, to the out to the possible outcome as your enemy does. And I think he made a great point of that here. And like I said, this this letter was uh, circulated generally. And uh, I'm going to read you one last uh, note from this, and then we'll we'll head on to Saratoga. <laughs> and that's uh, General Burgoyne's reply. Because I want you to see how 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 he's trying to get out of this. All right, uh, General Burgoyne writes back to Gates on September 6, 1777. He says, I received your letter of the second. Instant and in consequence to your compliance with my proposal of sending a surgeon to visit the wounded officers in your hands and some servants to carry money and necessaries to their masters and to remain with them. I have now to desire the favor of you to dispatch the officer you design with a drum, and it goes on with the the specifics of it here, but let's we'll get to right here. It has happened that all my transactions with the Indian nation last year and this have been open, clearly heard, distinctly understood, accurately minuted by very numerous and in many parts very unprejudiced audiences. So diametrically opposed to truth is your assertion that I've paid a price for scalps that one of the first regulations established by me at the Great Council in May and repeated and enforced and invariably adhered to since was that the Indians should re- receive compensation for prisoners because it would prevent cruelty. That not only such compensation should be held, but a strict account demanded for scalps. Okay, you hear what he's saying? 
he's saying that he's trying to say he didn't do it, and that it wasn't uh, it wasn't done. But then, then he's saying right here, he's just demanding a strict account for scouts, all right? Uh, so uh, you can you can say any way you want, but he's still saying the same thing, and. And even when he says that, you can see the results of his action already. We're talking about over 100, 100 folks killed in just a, a, a short time of a few weeks, including the uh, young fiancé of one of his own officers. All right? So you can't say that that what he did was right and that, uh, and that there were numerous folks who had uh, written down all the minutes of any of his negotiations, etc., because... Here is the actual result of, of his setting loose the Indians against the colonists. Those pledges of conquest, for such you well know they will ever esteem them, were solemnly and peremptorily prohibited to be taken from the wounded and even the dying. And the persons of aged men, women, children, and prisoners were pronounced sacred even in assaults. I don't know, because, listen, uh, you know, when you when you just have a big chunk of big bloody chunk of scalp and some hair, uh, you tell me was that a was that from a guy or from a girl or from a kid or from an old dude? Now if it was gray, maybe, but how are you really going to tell? Uh, once they once that's been removed from the body, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like uh, the rack on a deer. Once it's sawed loose from that deer, then uh, you know it, it's done. So, and then of course now you can tell with a deer that that was a male, but with a scalp, you don't, you can't. It's a chunk of bloody skin with some hair on it. So, and I don't care how many regulations you write. The the Indians, and I'm not saying that they were that they were ignorant or that they were stupid or anything else. They were they they were a very uh, uh, very knowledgeable people, but they came from a different outlook on this too. Uh, they, they they didn't have as much of a line between just the the males uh, of their enemies. You know, all of the an enemy was an enemy, and and they were going to take scalps. So. <clears throat> He continues on. In regard to Miss McCray, her fate wanted not of the tragic display you have labored to give it to make it as sincerely abhorred and lamented by me as it can be by the tenderest of her friends. Oh, uh, once again, General Burgoyne, I, I don't know how to, I, I don't know how we're going to make it any less horrid. Okay, when you are ready to, when you're expecting to open the door and find your a British officer husband there, and instead you find Indians hired by your British officer husband's commanding general to go out and kill people, and they kill you and chop you up and take your scalp. It kind of is like a standalone horridness. It doesn't need anybody to, to make it worse, right? It is what it is. It's a horrible event. The fact was no premeditated barbarity. There was no premeditated barbarity. No, it was just a it was just a spur of the moment thing, uh, which once again it wasn't. 
the Indians weren't saying, you know, we went over there to get a cup of tea or maybe to, I don't know, just steal some pots and pans or, I don't know, some bed clothes or something. And there was a woman there, and she gave us some lift. And well, in the heat of the moment, you know, we we chopped her up and scalped her. Uh, it was pretty much on their list of things to do. Uh, so you really can't say that there was no premeditated barbarity. That was the whole idea behind him setting the Indians loose against the colonists. It wasn't just a uh, a force multiplier for his uh, for the British regulars and for the Hessian mercenaries, it was an act of psychological warfare, which is if you guys are not going to uh, bow down and submit to our rule, you're not going to surrender, then we're going to let loose upon you the beast. Uh, that was the whole point of it, to to let loose upon them an, an absolutely uh, horrible fate. On the contrary, two chiefs who had brought her off for the purposes of security, not of violence to a person, disputed which should be her guard. And in a fit of savage passion, in the one from whose hands she was snatched, the unhappy woman became the victim. Upon the first intelligence of this event, I obliged the Indians to deliver the murderer into my hands. And though, and thought to have punished him by our laws or principles, of justice would have been perhaps unprecedented. He certainly should have suffered an ignominious death had I not been convinced by circumstances and observation beyond the possibility of a doubt that a pardon under the forms which I prescribed and they accepted would be more uh, efficacious than an execution to prevent similar mischiefs. All right. Once again, it's really hard it's, it's really hard to swallow this whole. He's saying that, okay, here's what really happened. Uh, the Indian was going to be, the uh, the female was going to be a prisoner. Now, now that may and they may not be. Uh, now, from what I've read, that, that that is a true story. But it certainly didn't help the fate of the, uh, I believe, the 11 or 12 other uh, adults and children that were murdered there. They were chopped up and scalped. So uh, I don't know... I don't know really why we're obsessing on this one lady, and the only reason is because this was a you know a story made for print, made for publication. Anyway, saying that uh, that the Indians got into an argument over whose prisoner she really was, and since the one Indian refused to give her back to the the first Indian refused to give her back to the second, the second just said to heck with this, and he killed her and scalped her. And he said, there, there you go. I saw the problem. Then he says that uh, though the Indians should have been published by punished by with a sentence of death, he was convinced by circumstances and observation beyond the possibility of a doubt that a pardon was uh, would be much more better than an execution to prevent similar mischiefs. Well, well, how is he going to prevent similar ones? It doesn't it actually say, look. You, I know I told you not to, uh, to to go kill a bunch of innocent folks and chop off their heads, take their scalps, etc. But if you do, you can be certain of this. You'll probably get a pardon. Okay? That's that's not a way to end it. And also, uh, if you, uh, 
if you were to execute him, then he would have lost his Indian allies, and then uh, they may have just pulled pulled out of the conflict altogether, because uh, they may have to be they may have to face the the British regulars and the colonists as their enemies. All right, so. Uh, so a great deal of crawfishing and spinning around, but the end result is that is that Burgoyne uh, he, he had to understand that what he did was wrong. And like I said, it wasn't just it wasn't just wrong during the colonies. They the folks back in England got news of this, and it was no different than than when our forces are off somewhere fighting and we get word that some of our forces have acted in uh, uh, in a fashion that does not bring credit to our nation, then, then the, the folks in England were yelling for some blood over it. And they were unhappy. And they were, they were, they would swing their support back to the colonists saying, look, how can we do this? These are, these aren't something, somebody we don't know. These are British, they were British citizens. You know, it wouldn't be any different than if we, if they brought, uh, you know, a couple of huge boatloads of savages to England and said, go get them. It's the same thing that can happen to us. It's wrong. All right. Uh, Anyway, that brings us up to, these these events occurred before uh, the route of St. Ledger, uh, which I spoke to you about last week. You know, remember when we talked about Ledger was heading in from uh, from Lake Ontario to meet up with uh, uh, Burgoyne and Howe uh, at the uh, as the three prongs uh, of the attack and were to split the colonists. <clears throat> and Ledger was routed uh, after Stanwix. Uh, remember, we had uh, Fort Stanwix and the Battle of Oriskany and uh, and Ledger's forces, <clears throat> lost his Indians there, and because he had lost his Indians, and he uh, and he suffered a, a pretty good uh, smacking there at the battle, including the loss of a great deal of his supplies and gear, uh, he left, all right? Now, once he had left, <clears throat> he, uh, that prong of the attack was was lost. And uh let's see where I am am, am here. <clears throat> and then uh, uh and then I told you that uh that Arnold, General Benedict Arnold, uh who was still at the time was still uh, fighting for the colonies. He had not yet uh, committed his betrayal and switched sides. Uh, he actually, uh, he was able to get some psychological warfare of his own going by uh, by grabbing uh, one of the guys uh, who lived in the Mohawk Valley. He was a, this was a guy who was pretty much crazy. Uh, and uh, and he had been captured by Arnold's men while attempting a recruiting rally behind the American lines. So he was sentenced to death as a spy. But he was let, let off on condition that he used his special powers among the red men 
there's notorious ravings that given him the status of a prophet among them to make Indians to make St. Ledger's Indians desert. And uh, I believe what they did, they actually uh, they sent Yost in with a couple of these Indian buddies, and I think that they uh, they'd actually like taken their muskets and uh, they'd taken his jacket off of him and shot several holes in it to to add to the the effect. And uh, uh, so whenever he went into the camp and started yelling and screaming that. Uh, that Arnold's men were attacking in huge numbers and that they'd been uh, destroying all of the uh, the Indians that before them uh, and uh, and killing them. And, and he pointed to the bullet holes in his jacket and said, look, look, I barely escaped myself. And, uh, and that caused the Indians, Ledger's Indians, who were already upset about the events that just happened, they, they took off. And... Uh, uh, and they left, which happened just in the nick of time, because uh, St. Ledger, the, the British, were close enough to the fort at that time that they could have begun digging a tunnel to place mines beneath the wall and bring the, the wall down. <clears throat> anyway, all right, uh, let's see, the... I'm actually uh, I've actually got a good deal more here information that I'd like uh, like to bring to you before I uh, before I talk about Saratoga. But we'll just go ahead. We'll go ahead and get started on the the uh, the the Battle of Saratoga. First of all, let's talk about the the British. Uh, the British situation as far as the events leading up to Saratoga, because it wasn't, there's not just one line uh, of history here. First of all, you have a, uh, in June 1777, you've got British General John Burgoyne, who he began his attempt to divide uh, the rebels by moving south from the British province of Quebec to gain control of the Hudson River Valley, separating the uh, the New England states from those to the south, you know, the southern colonies. Now, after his early capture of Fort Ticonderoga, his campaign had become bogged down in difficulties. Elements of the army had reached the Hudson as early as the end of July, but but with any with any attacking army, the further you get from your supply base, the harder it gets. You know, you you can do really good when you are right up against your your supplier, your, your logistical hub, but the further you get away from it, the harder it is. There's no uh, there's no roads back then. A great deal of the roads that they travel on had to be actually made by them, to cut by them. Uh, there was no good way to get supplies. They tried to follow rivers when they could, but uh, once you start going overland, you're, you're in hard shape. Uh, Anyway, the logistical supply difficult delayed the main army at Fort Edward. Now, one attempt to alleviate the difficulties, uh, the logistical difficulties, failed when uh, when over a thousand men were killed or, or captured at the August 16th Battle of Bennington. Uh, furthermore, news reached Burgoyne on August 28th that uh, St. Ledger's expedition down the Mohawk River, 
had turned back after the failed siege at Fort Stanwix. Now, that's the one we talked about last week. So we've got the three prongs going. You've got Burgoyne coming in from the north down the Hudson Valley, uh, the Hudson River Valley. You've got the uh, St. Ledger expedition coming down through the Mohawk River Valley uh, from Ontario. And then uh, uh, and then you have the third prong, which is supposed to be traveling north up the Hudson uh, by how? And, uh, and you already have the the uh, the one prong has failed. <clears throat> now, the Battle of Bennington uh, took place on August 16, 1777. And this happened in uh, Walloomsek, New York, which is about 10 miles from, from Bennington, Vermont. Uh, there was a rebel force of 2,000 men, uh, mainly composed of the uh, New Hampshire and Massachusetts militia. And these guys were led by uh, General John Stark. And they were reinforced with men uh, uh, under Colonel Seth Warner and members of the infamous Green Mountain Boys. What they did was they defeated a detachment of General John Burgoyne's army led by Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Baum and supported by additional men under Lieutenant Colonel Heinrich von Breimann. <laughs> and the reason that this happened, it was a it, it was a huge blunder. Okay? Baum's detachment was a mixed force of 700 men composed of dismounted Brunswick with dragoons, Canadian loyalists, and Indians. The main body, though, were, uh, were the German mercenaries. And he... Uh, Bomb was sent by Burgoyne to raid Bennington in the uh, New Hampshire area to get uh, horses, draft animals, and other supplies. And like I said, we've got a whole uh, the uh, Brunswick Dragoons uh, Dragoons are mounted uh, infantry, and they didn't have any horses. So he said, he goes, what you guys are going to do, you're going to head over to uh, Bennington and you're going to uh, you're going to make raids over there, and you're going to get uh, all of their uh, horses and stuff and draft animals so we can have something to pull the wagons and so that the dragoons can be mounted again. Now, believing the town to be only lightly defended, Burgoyne and Baum were, were unaware that Stark and 1,500 militiamen were stationed there. And after a rain-caused standoff, Stark's men uh, actually began an envelopment of Baum's position, taking many prisoners and killing Baum. Reinforcements for both sides arrived, but it was right at the wrong time, because it was right as Stark and his men were mopping up. And then the battle restarted, with Warner and Stark uh, driving away Bryman's reinforcements with heavy casualties. <clears throat> the The battle was actually a very important victory for the rebel cause because, number one, it reduced Burgoyne's army, the only army left in this three-prong uh, this three-prong attack. It reduced Burgoyne's army in size by almost a thousand men, and it caused the Indian support, this is Burgoyne's Indians now, the ones that denounced Galp and the folks, it led his Indian support to largely abandon him and deprived him of all his needed supplies. Everything that, that that eventually contributed to Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga. And the, the victory also galvanized 
the colonial support for the independence movement in these areas. And it, and it played a huge role in bringing France into the war on the rebel side. And we're, we're going to talk about that more in a minute. And the battle is uh, celebrated in the state of Vermont even today. It's Bennington Battle Day, all right? So I don't have to tell you the Vermont folks about that or about the Green Mountain Boys because uh, all of you Vermont folks are uh, somehow or another you're all related to the Green Mountain Boys anyway. <laughs> all right. Uh, combined with the earlier news that General Howe had sailed his army from New York City on a campaign to capture Philadelphia, instead of moving north to meet Burgoyne, and the departure of most of his Indian support following the loss at Bennington, Burgoyne's situation was really becoming difficult, right? So first, you have this great idea, and of course it was a great idea, and and had everybody stuck to the plans and it worked out like it was supposed to be, it would have been uh, a serious blow to uh, to the Continental Army and to the colonists, where you have the three-pronged attack coming in, three strong uh, British regular and irregular forces coming in and uh, and actually splitting the southern colonies from the northern colonies. Instead, you have first the defeat of St. Ledger and his forces. Then you have a large number of uh, Burgoyne's forces stripped off and his Indian allies. The next, he hears that uh, Howe, who was supposed to be moving north and uh, and meeting up with him, has actually diverted his army, and he is sailing to Philadelphia on a campaign to uh, to capture Philadelphia instead of moving north to meet Burgoyne. So, so this thing that starts off as uh, as a great idea and was really uh, really quite a uh, a threat to the colonists is not turning out so good. All right, faced with a need to reach uh, his defensible winter quarters, which would require Burgoyne either to make a decision to to head back to Ticonderoga, which they had already captured earlier, or to advance to Albany, he decided on the latter. Uh, you know, because going backwards never looks good. So he he decided that he would head on to uh, head south onto Albany. <clears throat> Consequent to this decision, he made two further crucial decisions. One, he decided to deliberately cut communications to the north, so that he, he wouldn't have to maintain a, a chain of heavily fortified outposts between his position and Ticonderoga. So as he's traveling along, you know he's already uh, he already took Ticonderoga, Mount uh, Independence, and uh, Mount Defiance. And as he's moving along, you know they're building fortified positions, and this was to help uh, defend and uh, separate uh, the two groups. Now he's decided uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to keep those fortified fortified positions anymore. I'm going to close them down and uh, have all the men either come to me or go back to Ticonderoga. And he decided to cross the Hudson River while he was in a relatively strong position. So he therefore ordered uh, Baron Rietzel, who commanded the rear of the army, 
to abandon the outpost from Skeensboro south. And then you have the Army cross the Hudson just north of the uh, of Saratoga uh, between the uh, September 13th and 15th. All right, now let's talk about the American situation. Uh, you have the the Continental Army, which uh, remember is not it's not everything. The Continental Army is the army uh, the the fledgling army of the United States of the colonies. Each state still maintain maintains its own state militia, and then there were other independent militias. All right. But the Continental Army had been in a slow, steady retreat uh, ever since Burgoyne's capture of Ticonderoga early in July. Now, we also told you about the uh, the events preceding that, uh, but we'll, we'll just continue on that. Now, by mid-August, the Army, uh, which was in under command of uh, General Philip Schuyler, was encamped south of Stillwater, New York. And on August 19th, Major General Horatio Gates assumed command from Schuyler whose political fortunes had fallen over the loss of Ticonderoga and the ensuing retreat. Uh, Schuller, uh, Schuller was not in good favor. All right, He had made several mistakes at Ticonderoga. One was uh, not... Uh, defending Mount Defiance so that uh, the British were able to emplace guns on the higher ground, in the higher ground overlooking Ticonderoga, where they could then fire into Ticonderoga, which made uh, the continued defense of Ticonderoga untenable. So uh, that was not a good decision. And, and because of that, because of several other foibles that are, have occurred, uh, Schuller was uh, his political fortunes uh, were low, and Gates took command. Now Gates and Schuller were they were from very different backgrounds, and they didn't get along with each other. They had previously argued many times over command issues in the army's northern department, and Gates became the beneficiary of an army that was growing in size as a result of increased militia turnout following calls by state governors. Now. Well, we just told you about the successes at Bennington and the widespread outrage over the slaying of Jenny McRae with the fiancé of the loyalist officer in Burgoyne's army uh, it caused a great deal of folks to who were on the fence post to pick sides. It even caused a lot of the, the Tories saying, look, if they can happen to her, it can happen to us. So so being a, a sympathizer of England is no protection for us. We better protect ourselves. So the militias began to turn out in great numbers. And then there was a victory at Bennington. And uh, this caused a, a, a surge in the size of the Continental Army as it was supplemented by the state and independent militias. <clears throat> uh there were also some some strategic decisions by Washington that improved the situation for Gates' army. Uh, Washington was actually mostly concerned about the movements of General Howe, who he considered uh, to be the biggest threat. Uh, 
and what what Howe's goal was, because he wasn't sure. And Washington was always very obsessed with gaining independent uh, intelligence and trying to ascertain, ascertain what Howe was going to do, what any of the commanders were going to do. But he saw what was happening to Burgoyne's army. He'd already seen what had happened to St. Ledger's. So now he's mostly concerned, at least strategically, with uh, what Howe is going to do. Uh, he knew that Burgoyne was, was still on the move, and he took some risk in July, and he sent uh, uh, aid north in the form of uh, General Benedict Arnold, which was his most aggressive field commander, and Arnold was. While Arnold was fighting for the colonials, uh, his... He was one of the most aggressive, uh, I, one of the most, uh, uh, the most of tactically astute uh, uh, generals that the that the colonies had. Uh, he also sent uh, uh, Major General Benjamin, Benjamin Lincoln, who was a Massachusetts man, who was noted for his influence with the New England militia. And why is that important? Because he, Washington wants the state militias to turn out to help him uh, in his battles with Howe. Like I said, some of these state militias and some of the the folks involved in this, uh, they weren't uh, they weren't in any immediate threats. So they weren't sending troops to to the aid of the Continentals. They were being held back in case there was some threat to the state. Uh, so Lincoln, who was a Massachusetts man and was and had a great deal of influence with the New England militias, he was sent there to ask for their help. Now, in August, before he was certain that Howe had sailed south, uh, he had ordered 750 men from Israel Putnam's forces who were defending the New York Highlands. He ordered them to join Gates' army. He also sent some of the best forces from his own Army, including Colonel Daniel Morgan, head of uh, Morgan's Riflemen, and he was the uh, commander of the newly formed Provisional Rifle Corps, which comprised about 500 specially selected riflemen from Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, chosen for their sharp shooting ability. Okay? And uh, uh, we know that getting into Morgan's rifle companies was a very hard proposition. I mean, uh, he had some very strict, uh, some very strict rules on who would be let in, and they were the absolute best riflemen in the nation. Okay, so uh, uh, he had sent these folks on to join uh, Gates' forces. Now, on September 7th, Gates ordered his army to march north. Uh, there was a site known as Bemis Heights, just north of Stillwater, about 10 miles south of Saratoga. And this was collected because of, it, of the defensive potential. And the army spent about a week constructing uh, defensive works designed by the Polish engineer who was attached to the Continental Forces, Thaddeus Kosius Kusko. Now, the Heights had a commanding view of the area, and they it also commanded the only road to Albany, where it passed through a defile between the Heights and the Hudson. To the west of the Heights lay more heavily forested bluffs that would present uh, a really significant challenge 
to any heavily equipped army. And uh, uh, so, so this is basically the only road through there. And these, the heights, Bemis Heights, commands uh, that road. That means it has the ability to look down upon the road, which means you can place your artillery there and fire on it, which is very important. And uh, and they had, uh, uh, it says, a, I think they said about a week uh, to be to building fortifications. And all the men were involved in this. All right, so, so then you have uh, Burgoyne, who is, is actually moving rather slowly and very cautiously because because his the Indians he lost his uh Indian support which deprived him of uh of the Indian scouts which he was using to give reports in the American positions. Now we're going advance to the south after crossing the Hudson and on September eighteenth the vanguard of his army reached uh, a position just north of Saratoga, which is about four miles from the American defensive line, and her skirmishes began occurring between the American scouting party and the leading elements of Burgoyne's army. Now, the American camp had become a bed of festering intrigue ever since Arnold's return from Fort Stanwix. Now, <clears throat> here we have an example of uh, folks and stuff getting uh, in between missions, all right? While Arnold and Gates had previously been on, had been on pretty good terms, despite uh, their, both of them had very prickly eagles, egos, uh, Arnold managed to turn Gates against him by taking on staff officers friendly to Schuler and dragging him into an uh, ongoing feud between the two. Now, the, the conditions hadn't yet reached a boiling point on September 19th, but the day's events of the battle contributed to the situation. Gates had assigned the left wing of his defenses to Arnold and had assumed command himself on the right wing, which was normally assigned to General Lincoln, whom Gates uh, had detached in August with some troops to rash the British positions behind Burgoyne's army. It sent these guys out on a swing around so they could come up behind Burgoyne's forces who were marching south and began attacking the army there and harassing them. Both Burgoyne and Arnold understood the importance of the American left and the need to control the heights there. And after the morning fog lifted about 10 a.m., Burgoyne ordered the armies to advance in three columns. Baron Rietzel led the left, led the left column consisting of the German troops on the 47th foot. Now, on the river road, bring the main artillery and guarding supplies and the boats to the river. Then you had General James Hamilton commanding the center column, consisting of the, uh, the 9th, the 20th, 21st, 62nd regiments. These guys would attack the heights, and General Simon Fraser led the right wing with the 24th regiment and the light infantry and grenadier companies. These companies, the mission of these guys was to turn the American left flank by by infiltrating and negotiating through the heavily wooded high ground north and west of Bemis Heights. What they're going to try to do, there's, there was a, a very thick, dense forest here, and they're going to try and get them to go through 
the forest and end up on the American left flank and then trying to turn that left flank, roll up that left flank. Arnold realized that a, a flanking maneuver was very likely, and he had asked Gates for permission to move his forces from the heights to meet these potential flanking attacks. So while the American skill at woodland combat would be an advantage, Gates, whose preferred strategy was to sit and wait for frontal assaults, he grudgingly permitted a reconnaissance force uh, consisting of Morgan's men and also Henry Dearborn's light infantry. Now, when Morgan's men reached an open field northwest of Bemis Heights, belonging to uh, the loyalist John Freeman, it was his farm, that's why it's called the Battle of Freeman's Farm, they spotted the British advanced troops in the field. Frazier's column was slightly de delayed and, and and hadn't reached the field yet, while Hamilton's column had also made its way across a ravine, was approaching the field from the east through the forest, which was very dense and, and across difficult terrain. Retail's force, while it was on the road, was delayed by obstacles thrown down by the Americans. Uh, the Americans would quite frequently, if there was a road, uh, the road would be cut through the woods, right? And they would send out, uh, you know, 50 or 100 guys with axes, and those guys would spend a couple of days chopping down every tree they could and dropping it on the road because you can't uh, you can't drag any equipment across it. And guys can guys can try and stumble on it or try and walk around it through the woods or something like that. But you can't get any equipment past it. No supplies, no cannon, no horses. It has to be laboriously sawn and chopped and removed. All right. So that's what they had done. That's how they stopped uh, the movement on the road. Uh, let's see when uh, okay there they are there lethal force is still it was on the road but it was delayed right by the by the obstacles the Americans had put down uh, then the fight actually started and lethal heard gunfire to the west and uh, he decided to send some of his artillery down kind of a uh, like a trail in that direction. And the troops Morgan's men saw uh, were an advanced company from Hamilton's column, all right? Now, this is Morgan's Morgan's men, and Morgan's men are the riflemen. Morgan's men uh, were in good positions. You know, they knew how to, to, to take advantage of cover and concealment, and they took very careful aim and bang. They picked off virtually every single officer in the advance company, and then they charged, uh, <laughs> unaware they were headed directly for Burgoyne's main army. You know, Morgan's men were were doing what they knew what to do, which was to take advantage uh, of a victory and uh, and try and exploit any successes they had. Anyway. Well, they succeeded in driving back the advance company, the one they just saw the officers, officers from. Frazier's leading edge arrived just in time to attack Morgan's left. All right? Remember what I said? The the two groups were coming from different directions. Morgan uh, hits the advance column, the advance troops from Hamilton's company. 
at them. While he's doing this, Frazier's men arrive on Morgan's left and begin attacking into his flank. And now once he did that, it scattered his men back in the woods. Now Wilkinson, who had ridden forward to observe the fire, returned to the American camp for reinforcements. And the British fell back toward the main column, the leading edge of the column, opened fire, killing a number of their own men. And uh, uh, I'm telling you, if you've, uh, this is not an uncommon thing, okay? As much as I hate to say it, it's not an uncommon thing to... Uh, warfare is a very confusing thing, especially night combat. And uh, I remember thinking when I was on, when we were on night movements, if you're on night ambush, it's not quite as bad. It's still bad, but not quite as bad. But I remember... If you're in a night movement to contact, it's about the worst thing you can do because there's a bunch of folks in the dark with guns and they're going to shoot those guns and they're going to shoot in all directions, etc. And it's just uh, it's very dangerous. And uh, and warfare in itself, of course, by its nature, is dangerous. Anyway, the British ended up uh, chewing up a large group of their own men uh, there was a lull in the fighting around 10, around 1 p.m. as Hamilton's men began to form up again on the north side of the field, and the American reinforcements began to arrive from the south side of the field. Now, once he heard that Morgan was in trouble, Gates ordered out two more regiments, the 1st and the 3rd New Hampshire uh, regiments, to support Morgan, with additional regiments from the 2nd New York, the 4th New York, the 1st Canadian, and the Connecticut militia from the Brigade of Enoch Poor, uh, uh, to be to be sent as the battle progressed, and uh, Burgoyne arrayed Hamilton's men with the 21st on the right, the 20th regiment on the left, and the 62nd in the center, with his 9th held in reserve. All right. Okay. It looks like we're at, uh, right at, at the end of uh, of our time for tonight, and we'll pick up the uh, we'll try and quickly finish up the battle. Uh, the, the the multiple battles at Bemis Heights, uh, Freeman's Farm, Second Battle of Bemis Heights in Saratoga uh, uh, this next week. Listen, I want to thank everybody for calling in, and uh, I'd like to remind everybody about the self Reliance Expo in Dallas, the 10th and 11th, and uh, we'll see you this coming Friday at... Uh, 7 p.m. Central. It will be Friday instead of Thursday. So we can uh, give you a uh, an update on the the Dallas, Dallas Southern Alliance Expo. All right. I want to thank everybody. Thank you, Call Screener. Thank you all the folks who called in. Thanks, Jim, from Colorado and his group. And uh, we will see you this uh, Friday at 7 p.m. Central. Young, my teacher sold.
Dragging who we meet, you call this liberty. 